One of the thoughts uh, that has intrigued me over the years is the idea that the church is to be a countercultural society. The church at its core is to be different. We are to be distinctive. And some of the language that the Bible uses of the church and of believers is that we are to be salt and light. But what does that look like? And how do we get there? With the tectonic uh, shifts that have taken place around us seemingly in in just the last uh, decade or so, with respect to uh, what some refer to as uh, the moral revolution, or, or perhaps it's referred to as the, the creation of a new morality, um, it's, it's natural for Christians to be deeply concerned about what they're seeing take place in the world around us. It's also a natural instinct for us to think about how we can resist that new morality uh, and um, uh, reverse it. We want to roll up our sleeves. We want to do something. The Bible, however, warns us not to be too quick in assuming that the problems of the world are out there or that it has little to do with us. In fact, when we see problems in the world, the Bible, the New Testament, encourages us to wonder, is this a a kind of check engine light? It's, you know, so you have on your dashboard that, that check engine light that tells you that there's something going on in your car without giving you a lot of information about that. Well, sometimes when we see the world around us fracturing, when we see it declining and, and um, uh, in, um, into uh, a lack of truth, a rebellion against truth, um, we need to ask the question, is this a red flag? Is this the check engine light that actually it's pointing to something that's wrong with the church? Jesus himself, he teaches us that before we can address the splinter in our brother's eye, we first need to deal with a log in our own eye. And the New Testament warns us in 1 Peter that judgment, that is the cleaning of thing, cleaning things up, well, that begins, judgment begins with the household of God. And this is why this sharply worded passage that we're going to be reading from the Apostle Paul to the Corinthians is of great relevance for us. It's a call for both Christians and uh, as individuals and as a church to recognize our identity as the temple of the living God and the need for us as believers and as a church to renounce the world, the worldliness of the world, and to pursue a new way of holiness. And so with that, would you rise for the reading of God's word? This is 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through chapter 7, verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. 
as God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Would you pray with me? Give us, O Lord, a pure judgment, a sincere love of your word, that we would not be deceived and carried away by every falsehood, but that we might grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Now, if you recall last week, um, the passage we dealt with last week were the bookends um, they were the, the, the opening and the, the closing of this, this passage. And in those bookends, the apostle was reaffirming his genuine love uh, for these Christians, for this, uh, this church, for the Corinthians. And, and part of what he's doing there is he's, he's wanting them to know that what then he has next to say is couched not in a, a, a desire to attack or to harm or uh, 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 to judge, but rather to build up, to strengthen. And so um, in this passage before us, the basic demand is this. It's for the church to pursue a holy, distinctive manner of life worthy of who uh, we are. And this moral demand is put in two different ways. At the start of the passage, this moral demand is put negatively. And that's where we're going to start. It's In general, it's to be separate from the world. That's that's this command to pursue holiness, in this case, by being separate from the world. Verse 14, it begins this way. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Through this passage, the apostle is going to use these word pictures. He's going to allude to these Old Testament um, images to help us understand um, better why and what this means as, as he puts this call to us to pursue holiness. Well, this word picture of being unequally yoked is rooted in a passage like Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 10. And there in Deuteronomy, we just simply read this. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. Okay? You shall not, you know, the idea is you don't want to yoke a donkey and an ox together um, uh, in order to plow a field. Well, why? Well, because you're binding them together. So the yoke is that wooden fastener that would come over the, the necks of the animals and keep them together. But the problem is that an ox and donkey are a very different size. They have very different strength, a very different gait. And to try to plow a field with these two creatures yoked together is going to be very difficult and probably ineffective. And so the apostle uses um, uh, this, this imagery to say to these Corinthians that, um, that those close partnerships 
with unbelievers, especially uh, in the spiritual realm, especially where it, it, uh, um, it impacts or influences our walk with God, our worship with God, these close partnerships with unbelievers uh, needs to be avoided. In the context of 2 Corinthians, it, it, it does appear, and he doesn't make this explicit, but, but in the context, um, likely what Paul has in mind here are these false teachers that have infiltrated the church at Corinth who have been given a position to speak, who have been given a position of influence. And this alliance, this partnership is doing grave damage because these false teachers are um, uh, undermining, they have rejected the um, the apostolic authority of the Apostle Paul. They have undermined what he is teaching, including the, the core of the gospel itself. And so he's saying, you know, this is, you are unequally yoked when it comes to allowing these false teachers to have influence within your church. But this clearly has ramifications for other close, intimate relationships that believers may want to have with unbelievers. For instance, the New Testament expectations for believers is that they are to be equally yoked in marriage. Uh, this means um, that we are only um, uh, permitted to marry another believer. In 1 Corinthians 7, um, the Apostle Paul writes, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes. So she has freedom to be remarried, but only in the Lord. Only in the Lord. Or you can marry whoever you want, <laughs> with the proviso that they are a fellow believer. Now, many will wonder, uh, is this too much of a limitation? Um, but this isn't about taking away the Christian's freedom. This is in the context of God's desire for our best. God knows. Um, he, he desires for his children to have marriages that, are, that flourish, where husband and wife are on the same page. And when a, a, a believer is married to a, a non-believer, a non-Christian, um, you can share a lot of, of interests and values together. But there comes a point at that deepest level of commitment that your deepest um, affections and desires and ultimately uh, you, you, your spiritual beliefs, those you can't share. And it can lead to this, this inequality, as Paul describes, the, the ox um, uh, uh, yoked with a donkey, and it, makes, um, it can make things very challenging. God um, declares this for our good. And you could also say, again, this is not explicit. But that same logic would even apply to dating relationships. You know, if you're, you're dating, there's not an explicit command. Oh, you, you, you must not date a non-Christian. But that logic would certainly indicate it's not wise. <laughs> Where's this going to go? Um, this is, uh, uh, there may be exceptions to that, but um, certainly it would not be uh, consistent with biblical wisdom. This principle uh, might also apply to close business partnerships where two people are bound together and where spiritual principles need to be shared. Why? Because when you start a business with someone 
or you run a, you know, you, you co-own a business with someone, there are so many ethical issues that have to do with the use of finances, ethical issues about how to treat your employees. And so many of these are um, uh, influenced, they're directed by our Christian commitments. And so um, that can also be a place where that close partnership should be avoided. The demand is put in a slightly different way, just a few verses later in verse 17. In verse 17, the apostle says, and he's quoting here from uh, Isaiah, he says, therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean, unclean thing, then I will welcome you. This is another word picture that the apostle is alluding to. He's alluding to this passage in Isaiah 52, and in the context of Isaiah, this is a word to the Jewish exiles who are living in the pagan empire of Babylon. And they are preparing, God is preparing them to make a return back to their homeland, back um, to the city of Jerusalem and to the the region of uh, Judea. And in that preparation, this is where this, this command comes. You are to, um, uh, uh, to be separated then as you prepare yourselves for this return. Um, you are to come out of the, this paganism. You are to come out of uh, all the cultural customs um, that you have lived with now for decades. Many of those are going to have to be renounced as you make this clean break as you return to the land. And this becomes uh, an image of, of the kind of clean break that followers of Jesus are called to make when they receive him as their Lord and as uh, uh, his or her Savior. We are called as part of our trust, our faith, our allegiance to Jesus to make a clean break with the world. We are to renounce the worldliness of the world. We're to renounce all the things that God says are wrong, that may compromise our obedience to God, things that the Bible calls sin and idolatry. This principle is not just simply an Old Testament um, requirement. Uh, Listen to a few of these passages um, uh, from just cross-references in the New Testament. Romans 12.2, again, Paul writes, Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. James 4.4, you adulterous people. Now, James is writing to fellow Christians, right? You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. It's hard to put it more strongly than what James does there. And then hear this word that Paul gives to the Ephesians. Paul writes, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. 
Therefore, do not associate. Again, that is, don't be closely bound with them. For at one time you were uh, in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. The basis for this moral demand is found then in verses 14 through 18. The first thing to note is that there are two, and I'm going to just say two things about the basis here. One is um, that there's, there are two antithetical principles that run through the, uh, the world around us. And Paul highlights these opposing principles. These, these are opposing spiritual principles um, through a series of rhetorical questions. And so there's the expected answer is none. So here he writes, beginning in verse 14, for what partnership, just another uh, way of describing that idea of being bound or yoked, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Again, you see the, the stark contrast, light, darkness, righteousness, lawlessness. What accord has Christ with Belial? Belial there is just this kind of ancient um, term, a name that here is being applied to Satan. It's, it's emphasizing that Satan is worthless and that he is hostile to God, to Christ. And of course, what, what harmony, what kind of agreement do Christ and Satan have? Well, the expected answer is none. Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? None. All of these rhetorical questions are simply making the same point. When it comes to our deepest loves, our strongest commitments and desires, there remains this unbridgeable gulf between believer and unbeliever. And this is consistent with what Paul says earlier in 2 Corinthians 5.17, when he writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. There's something radically different, radically um, uh, uh, contrasting in the life now, the spiritual principle that guides the life of the believer um, in contrast to the unbeliever. Now, we can have very meaningful friendships with unbelievers, but there comes a point in the relationship where we find ourselves on two different pages where believer and unbeliever, just, we just fail to connect. We fail to be united because at the end of the day, we inhabit two opposing worlds. Christians serve a king that the unbeliever does not serve. The believer serves a king by the name of Jesus, while the unbeliever, according to the New Testament, remains under the domain of Satan. Christians have their citizenship in a kingdom of light and life. Non-Christians, the Bible tells us, are excluded from this kingdom They remain in a kingdom of darkness and death until or unless they too come to place their faith, their trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Now, and this is probably a good place to to try to clarify what this does not mean. What does separation from the world not mean? Well, it doesn't mean that we should all move out of our homes 
and find a, a big, you know, monastery in the hills. <laughs> Some of you, you're thinking, oh, that'd be so great. Others of you are like, that'd be terrible. But that's not what this is saying. We're not to, um, to remove ourselves physically out of um, uh, uh, the society of non-believers. Nor does this mean, um, now there are some that may have a specific call to that. There are exceptions, of course. But in general, that's not what this means. Uh, nor does it mean that we are no longer allowed to join with non-Christians when it comes to community projects or public works or um, some political or legislative uh, goal. Yes, we can continue to work on these kind of societal, um, temporal goals and projects together. Nor does it mean, let's say, um, for whatever reason, you do have a Christian married to a non-Christian. Is this saying that they should separate, they should get a divorce? Well, the Apostle Paul addresses that very issue, and he says, as long as the unbeliever, and in the New Testament, there were lots of situations where, you know, um, as the gospel goes forward, one, either the husband or the wife, but not the other, believed the gospel. They received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, but not their spouse, and the apostle is very clear. As long as the non-believer, the non-Christian, wants to stay married, you should remain married to that person. It does not mean that we are to avoid socializing or that we're to avoid friendships uh, in general with non-Christians. Paul clarifies this point in 1 Corinthians uh, when he calls for discipline on an immoral member of the church. In that context, he writes this. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. You'd pretty much have to be dead in order to accomplish that. That's not what he means when he says that we are to come out, that we are to um, not be unequally yoked or we are to uh, be separate um, uh, for the sake of holiness. Now, of course, there may be those friendships, and we'll come back to this, but that you do need to separate yourself from because they are causing you to compromise in your walk with the Lord. And we should also recall that Jesus himself models for us hospitality with unbelievers. He's eating with sinners and tax collectors and scandalizing the religious leaders who are witnessing his behavior on this point. Indeed, what Paul says in 2 Corinthians, it does not negate the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, with all this said, this is not paint by numbers. This requires discernment. This requires judgment, sometimes mature judgment. We are called to guard our hearts uh, and our minds from adopting some of the, the core uh, beliefs and attitudes and, and practices that are of the world, and they are not of God. And there may be some situations where we are called to separate ourselves from individuals, from particular friends who, they're just, because of their own commitments and, and because of their relationship to us, they are influencing us in, an, in a manner that is, that is uh, leading or tempting us to compromise our love, our faith in the Lord Jesus. 
Again, this requires discernment. If you're younger, this is a place where you want to go. Maybe you should talk to your mom and dad. Or if you, if you, or if you, if it makes better sense to, to find someone who's more mature, someone who's just a, an experienced Christian, just go to them and, and describe the situation and ask for their, their advice. Well, not only are there these two opposing antithetical principles in the world, Paul continues by explaining something very important about our identity in Christ. He wants us to understand that part of the basis of this separation is that we are the temple of the living God. Again, verse 16. And this is the last of his rhetorical questions. They've kind of been building up. What agreement has the temple of God with idols. As God said, for we are the temple of the living God, as God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, Paul is saying something that people in the ancient world would get far quicker than we moderns will get. And this is how a temple is perceived. We don't have, you know, temples um, uh, anymore, especially, you know, idolatrous temples for the most part. But in the ancient world, temples are where the god, the gods would, um, uh, this would be their house. This would be the habitation of the, the, the particular god. And, and in this case, he's referring specifically to the the temple that was in Jerusalem. The Jewish people's understanding of the temple was, this is where the, the glorious, holy presence of Yahweh was uniquely um, found. And, and this is what um, Paul means when he says um, that part of this temple idea is the idea that I will be your God and you will be my people and I will dwell among you. Well, the temples where God's presence is uniquely found, and this has always then meant that the temple is a sacred place. It is a holy place. You have to be careful even how you speak about the temple. And in, in ancient Israel, you had to be careful about who you brought to the temple and how close they could get to the temple, so sacred and holy um, uh, the, the temple was. And so here's what Paul's saying. No longer does God dwell in a building. Now God has made his holy presence among his people. The spirit of God has been poured out on believers. And he makes his habitation in our lives. And when we come together, he makes his habitation in the midst of his people. We are right now in the holy presence of God. And what James says is still true today. We are an adulterous people. What partnership, what what accord, what agreement has the temple of God, God's house, to do with idols? So James is right. You are an adulterous people when you, Monday through Friday, are worshiping the gods of this world. When you are bowing down to the pleasures, when you are bowing down to the lusts of the world, when you are bowing down and, and, and to the material and to what you own and what you possess in your money, when you are bowing down to the 
to the gods that surround us. And then on Sunday, you take your showers, you clean up, and you come, and you want to dine with God at his table. Who among you would agree to a situation where you are married and your spouse you know, has some kind of paramour, has a mistress or, 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 or whatnot? Is that okay with you? How much less okay is that with the God who is perfectly holy, who created the universe and who has died for us? That is not okay. And the result of this, you see, is you have to understand the way the temple presence of God works. Part of the vision of the temple, this came in these kind of these these prophetic visions where you see this river running out of the temple and where the river runs out, it results in all of these, this fruitfulness and, and life and, and, and trees of, with full of food that, that, that grow up around it. The idea of the temple was that the blessings of God's presence were to flow in and through God's people and then through God's people into the surrounding world, like the vision of these rivers just running with life and vitality and flourishing to the surrounding uh, nations. But what happens when God's people are compromised? What happens when we are not holy? When we fail to pursue holiness with all due humility and, um, and wisdom and, and zeal, well, that power of God, that life-giving power of God is blocked. In fact, what he's then got to do is he's got to bring judgment on his people. He's got to, and he does this in love. Just as a father disciplines the son whom he loves, so God disciplines his people. But that's what he has to do. And very often, you know the way he does that? as he causes the surrounding world to get worse and worse. Judgment begins with the house of God. This is what the apostle's saying. He's telling the Corinthians, you're compromised. And in many respects, it continues to be true today. Now, this is a question that all of us as individuals, that we need to ask ourselves. The moral demand, this leads us just to this, I'm going to make this short, but this leads us to this conclusion that where the moral demand is now put um, uh, more positively, and that is in the direction of cultivating holiness. It's not just merely separating yourself. Now it's positively cultivating purity, cultivating obedience, cultivating the mind and heart of Jesus within you and within uh, the church uh, as a whole. Verse 1, since we have these promises, beloved, you already have them. This is not to earn the promises. God has already given them to you. You want to pursue holiness to be who God wants you to be because of all that he has already done. You are already sons and daughters. Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. So that's still negative, but here's the positive, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Now, so many times we think of holiness as a killjoy. <laughs> oh, if, if I do what God wants me to do, I'm going to be the most unhappy person. 
It's going to kill my freedom. It's going to kill my liberty. No, it's just the reverse. When you're pursuing your idols, you know, it's like the Dr. Phil question. How's that working out for you? How's that working out for you? How's your unbelief working out for you? How's your commitment to, you know, putting your trust in your retirement accounts or, or putting your pleasure in, in, in pornography or addicted substances, whatever it is, how's that working out for you? It's not. It's because God loves you that he says, I have shown you the way you must take. That is consistent with who you are as a new creation, as my royal sons and daughters. And when you move in the direction of holiness, then you will know joy. Then you will know power. Then you will be salt and you will be light. Then you will be the kind of person and the kind of church that the world can no longer ignore that the world can no longer just act like, oh, no big deal there. No. A holy people is a powerful people. It is salt and light. Well, let's conclude there. Let's pray. Lord Almighty, our God and our Holy Father, It is yours to have pity and to save. And it is ours to praise your name, for you are never far from us. We thank you for the many pleasures and comforts of this life, for the touch of grace in every call of duty, for the needed discipline that we do uh, need from you, for every impulse that you place in our hearts to make things better. And in spite of our sinful stubbornness, our ingratitude, you continue to grant the means of grace for our holiness. Lord, grant us such thankfulness for all of your mercies that we putting off all grumbling and complaining, Lord, that we might always live to your praise, to the praise of your glorious grace through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.